Welcome into the Paul Kuharski podcast. I'm Paul Kuharski of paulkuharski.com, and I have finished my mandatory three mentions of my name to get us started. Welcome in. I uh, talk about the Tennessee Titans, and uh, we're coming off their win in Indianapolis, seven-point win. I know people weren't happy with the shape of it, um, and the second-half struggles we will cover here somewhat. Um, they're going to Washington. Commanders are not a good football team like the Colts aren't a good football team. So the Titans, who have not really found their footing or their traction, should be in good spot here to get to three and two before their bye week. Things will get more difficult after that. Um, they've got a rematch with Indianapolis. If you know me, you know I hate these uh, two matchups in the span of four NFL weeks is, is bad scheduling. Um, and the Titans and the Colts being done on October 23rd is bad scheduling. Then they play at Houston, which should definitely be a win. But things get really harder after that at Kansas City, Denver, I'm not real big on. But at Green Bay, Cincinnati, at Philadelphia, Jacksonville, at the Chargers, um, all very difficult. So uh, they need to get these wins now while they can. They ha do have a habit of playing to the level of their competition. And again, Washington's not particularly good competition. They have some good receivers, uh, one of whom won't play in this game, Jahan Dotson, the rookie. But um, I, I would think the Titans would be able to sustain it. Let's look back a little bit. Um, one of the themes I've had in my head this week is, is the team's messaging. Um, Derrick Henry came off the field <clears throat> after the win over the Colts and he is a self-critical player, which is part of what makes him an excellent player. Um, and he's, you know, critical of the team as need be also. And he was frustrated with the second half failures um, and, you know, said so. We talked about how they needed to be a, a lot better. Um, that was in an interview with Christina Pink at the end of a broadcast on Fox. Then he went into the locker room where uh, Mike Vrabel delivers his uh, post-game thoughts to the team. And then Mike Vrabel comes out and talks to the media before the media goes in the locker room and talks to some guys. And then Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry uh, typically make appearances at the podium. And, and uh, Derrick Henry did that. His tone changed uh, substantially. And he echoed what Mike Vrabel said. He echoed what Ryan Tannehill said. He echoed what virtually everybody said. I wasn't at the game. I was still recovering from, from COVID, but I, I did hear live Vrabel's comments that are, are broadcast on the internet. Uh, Tannehill's at the podium also, and Henry's at the podium where uh, they were very upbeat and excited about having uh, won that game. And they echoed their coach, you know, Hey, Winning in the league is hard. We're pleased to get a win, uh, all, all of that stuff. So, you know, I don't have any problem with any of that, but I, I, I did want to get into this concept of, of messaging and the degree of control that a, that a coach has with regard to messaging. And this was variable um, after the game. After the game, when he was asked about, how good it feels to get the 500 later in the answer about that. He said, if you ask them about the second half, I hope they tell you what I told them to tell you. We're excited to win. We're going to enjoy it. 
and we're going to get back to work. Now, he's not an iron fist guy where if somebody actually came out and if Derrick Henry came out and actually said what was on his mind and what he actually felt as an independent human being about the second half, which he had told already to Christina Pink coming off the field that he wasn't particularly pleased by the second half. He wouldn't have gotten trouble. Um, and they, they wouldn't have called him a bad teammate and he wouldn't have gotten called into Vrabel's office. <clears throat> but part of this cultural thing that Mike Vrabel and John Robinson have going on is this unity of message. I find it, you know, that it goes too far at times. I hope they tell you what I told them to tell you. And that that message has to be that we're excited to win and we're going to enjoy it and we're going to get back to work. I mean, I think you can both enjoy it and be critical of the failures within it, right? That's not unreasonable. The second halves have sucked. And I actually defended the Titans after this game, saying that if you had said before the game they'd scored 24 against the Colts and get three takeaways, that... Uh, you would have said the Titans, I would have said the Titans would win that game and could probably overall feel good. Uh, you know, if you took the 24 points and put them in the second half instead of the first half, you'd complain about the first half, but you'd feel like, hey, uh, you know, they finished well, they figured things out, all of that. Against a, an opponent like the Colts or the Commanders, you can get away with that stuff. You're not going to get away with it against some of those teams I named coming up later on. Kansas City, Green Bay, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, Jacksonville, the Chargers, Dallas. Um, but I am struck by, you know, and people don't think that's a big deal. You might not think that's a big deal. Certainly Vrabel and the Titans don't think that's a big deal. But I think that's telling about the NFL circa 2022 and how little like this is an example of the lack of fun in it. There's still fun in it, but you can't even say that you're not happy with the way the team played in the second half. You can't even say that really. The coach is going to construct the theme and you're going to repeat the theme. And that's how it works. That's how messaging for a team with a good culture in most places works. Probably with Andy Reid, you could say what you want, not, not really worry about the thematic messaging and things like that. And I like Mike Vrabel. I think he's a hell of a coach. I think sometimes on stuff like this, he's, he's a little bit too strong, but they tell you what I told them to tell you. It's too much. It's too much. Lift the thumb there, Mike. I mean, sure. They, like I said, Enjoy the win, just like you're asking them to, but enjoy the win and be critical of it. What happened to the, uh, you know, we're going to fiercely, it's, it's good to be examining the negative things about this game out of a, uh, out of a win. But now it's, we're going to do cartwheels and uh, damn it. Don't you criticize that second half performance because we're busy over here tumbling in excitement over that win. And don't let Derek tell you otherwise. One of the things about that win, uh, even if they weren't scoring in the second half, was the clock management at the end of the first half where uh, Ryan Tannehill on a third and one as the clock was ticking down. First off, Traylon Burks should have gotten out of bounds on an earlier play that would have stopped the clock and put the Titans in a much better 
clock situation. But then on a third and one, where they needed to get a first down in order to get a new set of downs in order to clock the ball, stop the clock, and make clock management a non-issue, Ryan Tannehill made a bad decision to try to run for it, didn't get it, and left the team in a fourth down situation where the clock did become a big issue. Tannehill said after the game, he didn't really understand what happened, which I thought was crazy that a quarterback who's been very good at clock management under a coach who's been very good at clock management didn't seem to be aware of what was going on. And then when we spoke to him on Wednesday, I asked him about it and uh, he really didn't take any accountability um, and, uh, and basically put it all on special teams. Uh, we had that situation there. Um, possibility to, you know, for tackle short of the six, run the run the field unit on and, and be able to kick the kick the field goal with the running clock. We had enough time on clock that, um, that we say we have enough time to get that off. Obviously we'd like to get the first down and be able to, to spike it and um, and stop the clock there, but um, weren't able to execute. So that's Tannehill's take on this clock issue. Uh, I, I think I think that's a little much for him to put it all on special teams and, and for him to run it there. I mean, they're in range of a, you know, pretty makeable field goal there. Be much wiser for him to throw the ball away. Much wiser for him to throw the ball away there. So Todd Downing said, you know, that there was a superfecta of unique situations that kind of came up there. And yeah, he can put them in a situation where they have all outbreak, outbreaking routes so that they're sure to get out of bounds. It could be one and done on the reads and things like that. Um, but then it comes to Craig Ackerman, who is uh, the golden child of, uh, of Mike Rabel and is rarely, if, if ever, at fault for anything and sure enough, in this long answer he gives, asked about how this whole thing plays out, he manages to cite the referees and Corey Levin, who bumped into uh, holder Ryan Stonehouse as the field goal unit tried to get on the field, but never mentioned anything about good old Craig Aukerman. Uh, you know, we always expect us to, no matter what the time is, to go out there and execute it. Um, what we're trying to look for is the official to give us a signal, whether it's first or fourth down. Um, that's the one thing that we're going to try to do every single time. We didn't get that from him until late when the official gave finally the fourth down signal. Uh, we just got to do a better job of going out there. Obviously, if we're coming in on an angle, we don't want to hit our kicker or our punter who's going to be our holder. So uh, 19 seconds, we should have time to go out there and execute some stuff. We just got to make sure that official gives us a first or fourth down because if we get caught in a situation where it signals for first down, but it's really fourth, and we put our field goal unit out on there on the field, that's going to cause some uh, confusion on that part. So we'll continue to find that official, see what signal he gives us, and we'll go on next to you next time better. So I don't see a lot of accountability there from anybody as we got into the week and had a chance to talk to Tannehill again, to talk to Downing, talk to Ockham. And obviously it stops with, uh, with Vrabel who said, you know, he's got to be sure it doesn't happen again, yada, yada. 
but uh, I'm not real comfortable with that whole loop of non-accountability there. Set yourself up to stop the clock, get on the field, kick the damn field goal, get yourself to 27, especially since you're not scoring in the second half and every point's valuable. Now, again, they won by seven and everything looked pretty in the end, but it, it's not a good look. Now you botched the clock, but you kind of did it, you know, consciously at the end of the Giants game where the right hash mark became more important to you than gaining yardage for Randy Bullock who then missed the, what was it, 47-yarder that could have won you the game that would have you in at 3-1 and one instead of 2-2. Two and two. I don't, People don't understand why they made the choices that they made. But here, yeah, Burks failed to get out of bounds earlier. Tannehill failed to throw it away to get the clock stopped. He failed to get the first down when he chose to run. He insists that was enough time when it wasn't. Ackerman's blaming the official for not giving a clear call on first down, fourth down. And then he's blaming Corey Levin for trying to hustle. Corey Levin, by the way, you know, it's an embarrassing belly flop, but he did a hell of a job getting up very quickly and getting to the line of scrimmage. And he wasn't the only one that was late and caused them to run out of time or get the penalty there that said that they didn't get set in time to get off that kick in time. So they can't have another one of those. It's just bad form, bad form. And we've talked far more about bad special teams things this season than we've talked about good special teams things this season. And the common denominator there, Craig Ackerman. Craig Ackerman. No, he didn't botch any of that stuff, but didn't look like a, finely tuned unit running out there did it no but he's gonna blame Corey levin for tripping while he's sitting there waiting for the official derrick henry catching passes has been a very good adjustment todd downing's taking a lot of grief for the second halves for the play calling all of that derrick henry has been a pass catcher in this offense that has really supplemented his running. He and Dontrell Hilliard, who had a big opening day with two touchdown catches, have combined for 17 catches for 200 yards. That's 11.8 yards per running back reception. Uh, I believe that's second in the league. Washington allows 9.5 yards per running back reception that is the third worst in the league so based on that on my paper here um, you would think that's an area the titans can continue to go it's a thing of beauty when uh, henry catches a ball in flow particularly after the play action fake is to him and then the defense kind of relaxes like oh he's not getting the ball here and then five yards further upfield, he gets the ball kind of on the second level that he gets to when he's he's running well. Um, here's Downing on Henry as a pass catcher. Getting the ball in his hands any way that we can, and especially when we're you know trying to take some of these play action shots and all that, and they sink into coverage. Getting a check down to him is just like handing him a ball against a good box. So. Uh, we'll take it anytime we can, but he's done a nice job in the past game and a couple of good screens too. So that's been nice. Now, Henry beat himself up 
mercil mercilessly on um, the two that he didn't corral uh, on a heavy target day for a running back, for a Titans running back anyway. Um, I thought they were both drops. One of them was definitely a drop. I think Henry would say they were both drops and uh, said he gets a little excited, but um, he certainly comes away from that game, even in a win, even if Vrabel doesn't want him to talk about something bad, upset with himself over the two that he doesn't catch. Um, you know, and he hasn't turned into Christian McCaffrey by any means in terms of the versatility and the uh, capability to catch all kinds of passes or run, you know, a full route tree, but even, you know, catching the balls, running the, the routes that he's able to, he can be qu quite a weapon, a lot more than I suspected he would be able to be a lot more, I think, than the Titans at a certain stage of his career thought he could be. So um, that's good news for him and for them. Um, I just hope they don't have to do it like in lieu of having receivers make plays. Supplementing the passing game would be great. Supplementing Henry in the running game would be great. But now they're going to be without Burks. I would expect Josh Gordon will be up again. Um, you know, I'd probably rather see him throw to Henry than to Cody Hollister, but Hollister still presumably deeper downfield though with an 11.8 running back average gain uh, i don't know that hollister's gonna do that so gotta get the uh receivers and i know they've made their share of uh you know 15 yard plus 20 yard plus plays as a group but um want to see more from those receivers minus Burks, who was the bright spot in terms of like a guy who could potentially have a lot to gain in terms of ceiling. Who's the next guy? Well, Kyle Phillips is off the injury report, barring a setback. I'd like to see them get back to doing some of the things they were doing with him uh, week one when he was a big factor, but he's not a down the field guy either. Josh Gordon is the hope there. And he's, he's been around for a good while now. I'm hoping, you know, we'll see some stuff from Josh Gordon. He's the hope. Robert Woods has been doing more. So that's a good thing. But um, the big the big hope for, for bigger plays, I think, is, is Josh Gordon. Wanted to touch on Taylor Lewan, who uh, we know is out for the season. Um, and he spoke on, on his, uh, his podcast with good old Will Compton, Bussing with the Boys um about about that knee <clears throat> you know he's back last year from the acl repair but had knee issues a couple times knocked knocked out in pregame right before week two in seattle um and had some problems with it along the way he said on bussin last year during the season i had issues my knee was swelling up my knee was swelling up. I was always feeling pain in there. And I was like, I don't know what the deal is. Turns out this year, I found out that there are things with my knee going on now that are direct correlation to what happened when I got my knee done. So I have to go and get my knee fixed to be able to play football or to live like a normal life in general. So, I mean, this lines up with 
with what I had been hearing that the, like the ACL repair was uh, the word I heard was, was loose, you know, and that maybe it was, it was sh shifting on him in a way that a repaired ACL should not be shifting. And that's obviously unfortunate um, that that is, is the case, but, if he was having this, and this is just me speculating, thinking out loud, if this was a problem for him through last year, I, I wonder why this isn't something that would have been looked at after last year and conceivably repaired after last year that would have set him up not to have the problems this year, rather than having the problems uh, early this season and being knocked out within a couple games to miss another to have another season ending injury where he's got to go and have it surgically dealt with. So uh, he said, you know, when the time comes, he'll be an open book about it. And when he's an open book about it, those are, are questions that I certainly um, will pose and, uh, and seek to discuss with him. I'm, I'm curious about that. You know, his contract has another <clears throat> reasonably big number on it next year uh 14.8 i think but they can release him and not have any any cap penalty on it i think it's hard to count on him to be healthy next year and i think in regular circumstances you'd say no way and i think it's probably no way except the problem is the person charged with replacing him is john robinson and john robinson's record on the offensive line is horrific you got Isaiah Wilson and Dylan Radins. And finally, maybe they've gotten it right with Nicholas Petit Frere. So that's a first rounder, a second rounder, and a third rounder that it's taken to fill the Jack Conklin hole. And then, you know, Dennis Daly is looking okay, but, uh, you know, he's brought in some backup talent after letting Dennis Kelly go, Kendall Lamb for one, um, but some other backup quote-unquote talent that's just been terrible terrible um and so you know ben this could be ben jones's last year then maybe aaron brewer would move to center then you'd need a left guard is that going to be raidens i think raidens is is more likely to not be on the roster next year than he is to be a starting left guard so you need a starting left guard lawan gone you need a starting left tackle Maybe Petit Frere goes to left tackle. Then you need a starting right go, uh, right tackle again. So offensive line, a never-ending project. Wouldn't it be nice to see them have the same group two years in a row? All goes back. I, I know the Titans, if they hear this or hear me in general or read me, you know, pray that that Isaiah Wilson conversation would go away because it's gone away for them because they're very good at forgiving themselves as massive fails, but that pick's going to haunt them for, you know, they're chasing it, chasing it, chasing it. And uh, if Lawan's done and the odds are probably pretty good that he's done it, it's compounded. It's compounded by the Isaiah Wilson failure. Uh, I want to talk about these TV ratings. I, I, I'm not certain that Braden Gall has things down exactly because my understanding is that the Nielsen ratings system has, has changed a little bit 
for uh, for the market because the Nashville market has grown and it's changed for growing growing markets. Um, but um, the rating numbers for the Titans on TV in the Nashville area, and a lot of people are having trouble with this on Twitter, talking about West Tennessee and uh, talking about Nashville. These are, are Nashville numbers, Nashville numbers. And so the initial tweet Braden took out had, uh, had a math error in terms of the percentage down. Um, but he, he put out a secondary tweet here. Um, and so he's got them, um, and you can follow him at Braden Gall on Twitter. Titans averaged <clears throat> a 26.9 rating, I think, first four games of last year. That's a 301 plus um, households. And the first four games this year, 227,000 plus households. It's a substantial drop, 25% decrease by his math. Um, now I wanted to get into this. Now, first off, the Titans and AFC games are traditionally, have traditionally been on CBS. They have changed this uh, to kind of even things out. And the, 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 uh, CBS and Fox kind of more evenly distribute um, the games. And so the Giants game on September 11th, the opener was on Fox. The Buffalo game was a Monday night game. It started at 6.15 Central time. You're going to lose some people at the beginning of that game who aren't home from work. It was a giant blowout, so people are going to turn it off. There was a, a, an opposing Monday night football game, um, Eagles and Vikings, if I'm remembering correctly that some people are going to flip to as a, as an alternative while the Titans are getting blown out. So that's a tough ratings one there. Vegas game um, on September 25th, also on Fox and the Colts game um, this past weekend, also on Fox. So they had a weird run. They traditionally rate lower on Fox than they do on CBS when they're on uh, Sunday afternoon. The first game was a 325 central kickoff. The two more recent games were noon games. This week they're on CBS after the bye, CBS, CBS, then a Sunday night on NBC. Then uh, most of the remaining Sunday afternoon schedule is, is on CBS. For what that's worth, that is somewhat of a factor. It's not a 25% decrease factor, though. It's not. Um, uh, I, I think there is uh, a lingering effect from the uh, lingering disgust over the playoff loss when this team was 12 and five last year, had the AFC's number one seed. Ryan Tannehill threw three interceptions despite the fact that they sacked Joe Burrow nine times. They lost the first playoff game, which had they won it, they would have hosted the AFC championship game. And I think a lot of people were disgusted by that. And maybe some of them aren't watching this team. And I think a lot of people are disgusted by the AJ Brown thing. You trade away your, your number two offensive weapon. The guy who gives you a little bit of what the NFL is today, which is a explosive passing league. Hey, people love Derrick Henry. He, he's a phenomenal running back. 
but you're allowed to have multiple stars on offense and you're certainly allowed to have one and they've endured since 1999 you having one really big time receiver in Derek Mason and there's long long drought you finally draft AJ Brown in the second round and after three years you get in a contract dispute with him and you give up fast you give up fast and you trade him to Philadelphia while other guys in the same situation Terry McLaurin Debo Samuel DK Metcalf end up being retained by their teams in Washington in San Francisco, in Seattle, respectively. I think there, there's fan disgust with that. And I think those are factors here. And let's be honest, the Titans, very much a mom and pop shop. So while Bud Adams was running the team as, as the owner, he and his wife, Nancy, it, it was a mom and pop organization you know, uh, he spent money on football players. People always accused him of being cheap where he, where he was cheap was, was, uh, you know, with office finances, photocopies, uh, stuff like that. He monitored the prices and he didn't spend big on marketing by any means. Then, uh, you know, he, he got old, he got ill, he passed away. Tommy Smith took over for a couple of years, his son-in-law, that was a disastrous couple of years. They bottomed out with Ken Wisenhunt. Tommy lasted, I think, a year and a half, maybe. That's when Amy Adams Strunk came in to save the day. She's she's done a lot to modernize the operation, right? They've hired a ton of people. They built the the second building over at uh, Ascension St. Thomas Sports Park, um, where all these people are housed, and they've got departments that they never dreamed of having, and that they they're catching up or have caught up in, in many regards, but it's still not a good marketing organization. They haven't figured out how to sell to, uh, to, to Nashville in a way that, um, you know, if, if the wrong teams in town, um, a, a good percentage of, of quality seats are wearing the Jersey of that opposing team. Um, there, there are inherent difficulties in being a transplanted team. You know, it takes a generation or two in some regards. Um, but I also think some of these marketing people came without a football background. I think some of them are, are smug. I always understand when I call people smug that I'm smug. So I'm self-aware in that regard. Um, but they've got puffed out chests. They, they think they know everything. Um, they think they know the NFL and some of them don't have NFL backgrounds. They've, uh, I don't know, see some vanity projects. You see some, I, I, I just don't think the connection is all the way there. And the two things I want, if I'm Amy Adams Strunk, is you selling tickets to the building to Titans fans, which is a constant strain and to sustain the TV ratings for sure. So if I see the numbers on these four games, sure, the Fox thing is a factor, a primetime bomb is a factor. But if this is any kind of trend, I need an explanation for it. Because this thing, these ratings have been an absolute constant. Um, and, and these are still, you know, the top rated thing. But being down that margin, being down... Let me get that back in front of me. 
being down about 75,000 households on average over the first quarter of the season. That's concerning. I want my marketing people and my experts on these matters to be able to tell me what's gone on there to very clearly explain to me what it means to tell me about the expected bounce back and all of that. Because if I'm losing any kind of TV footing in Nashville with a, with a team that's still in a competitive window, with a team that was the number one seed in the AFC South last year, I, I want to know what's going on and how we stop any kind of bleeding that's going on there with the number one TV product in America. Couple stats to end the day, as is usually the case for us. Terry McLaurin of the Commanders has 769 receiving yards on first down since the 2021 season. Third most against NFL wide receivers, the only two ahead of him, Devontae Adams and Stephon Diggs. Titans have already faced those two. They didn't have much luck with Diggs, that's for sure. He's got McLaurin 171 receiving yards on first down. That's the eighth most in the NFL. Austin Hooper, I wrote about him this week. Um, he's averaged just 5.5 yards per target since the 2021 season. That's fourth worst of the 45 qualified NFL tight ends in that time span. The league average is nearly two yards more, 7.3. 5.5 yards per target for Austin Hooper, who's been largely invisible for the Titans after a training camp where we really thought, and we had a lot of reason to think that he was going to be a big piece of this offense and a safety blanket for Ryan Tannehill. Tricks on us. Uh, and I hope you'll look back on that piece if you didn't see it, of uh, the lies training camp told us, the things we saw at training camp that we thought would translate into the season that haven't. I hope you'll check out paulkuherski.com if you haven't. Uh, if you want to hear, read more about what's gone on in the second half of that Colts game, Mike Herndon had an excellent piece. Blake Bedingfield, who scouted for 19 years for the Titans, will have a piece up on Friday about what to anticipate in the Titans commanders matchup. Um, and you can check me out also on Outkick 360 with Jonathan Hutton and Chad Withrow. Until next time, I'm Paul Kuherski from paulkuherski.com. Be sure not to block the box and to lock your locks.